on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Is aging a disease? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm laughing because it, it this question has gotten a lot of attention lately. It gets debated, you know, back and forth. I guess... So, so let me let me start by saying, you know, 10 years ago when when I first got asked that question, you know, my answer was yes. I felt very confident that we should think about aging as the disease. Guys, I got to tell you something. I have a new favorite product. It is Pluck Seasonings. This stuff is amazing. And not only that, get this. You ready? Lean in for it. It is made with organ meats. Okay, hear me out. If you're like me and you understand and respect the unbelievable rich nutritional value of organ meats but you don't want to get all liver king and start biting into bull testicles and raw liver and spleens and all that well guess what there is an answer and it is delicious it is pluck seasonings try the all-purpose the zesty garlic the pure which is just a basically no taste ground freeze-dried organ meats that you can put in protein shakes recipes whatever to get the nutrients but don't worry about the taste and then there's the spice that is so good all right so thursday night for mrs wright i made her ribeye tacos and my ribeye tacos there is nothing about them that sucks they are absolutely amazing but but my friends this thursday was extra special because you know what i did i made a little avocado salad and i threw some of the zesty garlic pluck in there mixed it up put that on the ribeye tacos game changer so good so savory so delicious and get this mrs wright commented on how delicious they were had no clue that she had had a dose of spleen heart liver kidney all of it and didn't even know it so oh and some pancreas was in there too how about that i left one of the five organ meats out it is so good check it out at eatpluck.com and guess what for the jason wright show listeners you you can save 15 percent by using promo code improve because that's what we do around here baby we are improving always and always and i want you to improve your nutrition i want you to improve the taste of your food and you're going to do it with pluck that is eatpluck.com promo code improve for 15 percent off i guarantee you will love this stuff go get some and enjoy get plucking baby all right matt good morning how are you sir morning i'm great how are you i'm doing well man thank you so much for taking the time to be on the jason wright show i'm excited and like we were talking about just before you know you finally said hey we need to be recording this and i could not agree more so i had mentioned to you the more i learn about health and wellness and biology call it biohacking, whatever you want to call it. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. And so just as kind of a, a setup here for you, I'm not a podcast host that is going to try to make you make, make myself sound like I can keep up with you as a way to earn, <laughs> earn points. I'm going to tell you right now, I, I am learning. And if at any time you, you hear me and you go, Hey, Jason, I think this is what you're trying to ask brother, feel free. I will not take offense to it because 
I feel like I to to show the respect that I have for you coming on this show and to my audience, I just want to get the best information from from you possible. So uh, so thanks for coming on, man. I really really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. Happy to be here. And and I would say to you and everybody else, I'm learning too, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, as we were just discussing before we started recording, the more you learn about any given topic, this is probably true for any topic. It's certainly true in, in science and biomedical research and the biology of aging, which is my area of expertise. The more you learn, the more you should recognize how little you really understand the topic in, in depth. And um, you know, I think for me personally, I absolutely recognize that every day when it comes to the biology of aging, wellness, nutrition, it, these are extremely complicated uh, topics, uh, complex biological systems that human beings are. There's so much we don't understand. And I think there's a couple of important things to recognize with that understanding. One is it really should make you humble. And unfortunately, in this world, a lot of people aren't. They they give advice as if they what they say is absolutely the rock solid truth, and it's not. It's a it, in in most cases it's an educated guess. It might be right. It might be it might be a good guess, but it's still there's very little certainty. And so I think people should appreciate that. People want certainty. They want people like me or others to come on and tell them what they should do you know, with absolute certainty. And you should appreciate that there isn't a lot of certainty. There are some things that we're pretty confident about, but there's a lot of things that we're still learning. So I think that's just, it's a really important concept to to appreciate that, um, you know, sometimes what we say today, which is an educated guess, might change tomorrow as we get more data. And the other thing that I would say is if the the quote unquote experts that people are listening to aren't willing to change th their recommendations, their beliefs when they get new data, you should probably stop listening to that person because they're not credible. And, and I think that's, you know, again, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this space that, um, that, that aren't credible. Yeah. And that's one of the things that drew me to your work. Uh, I've heard you now on, like we were talking about, heard you on Tim Ferriss, heard you on talk, Dr. P uh, Peter Tia's show a number of times. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you is because of your approach, even though you study this stuff on a daily basis with regard to longevity and lifespan, you take a very much, hey, this is this is what the data has shown. This is what the research has shown. But hey, it's not there's no panacea. There is no guaranteed, you know, like we'll, we'll get to talking about rapamycin. Hey, you know, there is no longevity drug that you can just inject or or, or take orally and go, hey, yeah. look at that added 25 percent to my life. So here's where I want to start with this. Um, quick question, and you take it where you want to. Is aging a disease? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm laughing because it it th this question has gotten a lot of attention lately. It gets debated, you know, back and forth. I guess so. So let me let me start by saying, you know, ten years ago when when I first got asked that question, you know, my answer was yes. I felt very confident that we should think about aging as the disease, and my rationale for for, for that answer was that um, the reason why I think it might be useful to think about aging as a, as a disease is because we're all comfortable with the idea that, that diseases are modifiable through lifestyle interventions, medications, things like that. They can be cured. And aging is modifiable. We we know that now. The biology of aging, right? And 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 I and I I am explicit about saying the biology of aging because aging can mean different things to different people, but the biological mechanisms that cause a young person to become old 
are modifiable, much like diseases are. I don't know if we can cure aging. I'm a little bit hesitant to say that we can make people not age anymore. Theoretically, hypothetically, sure. We're nowhere near being able to do that from a science or technology perspective. But conceptually, I think it's useful to recognize that it is possible to have an impact on the biology of aging, to slow aging, maybe to some extent reverse aspects of aging. And the important implication of that is that we can delay, push back, maybe even prevent all of the functional declines and diseases that go along with, with aging. So conceptually, yes, I think it's fine to think of aging as a disease. I have modified my, my sort of public position on this question to the following. I don't think that's the right question. I think, unfortunately, because different constituencies view aging differently, they have different definitions of aging. When you when you talk about aging as a disease, that turns off a lot of people. For example, there are a lot of people who are over 70 years old, right, who, who don't have cancer or diabetes or heart disease, um, who feel like they're relatively healthy. When you tell them that they're sick, they've got a disease, you know, that offends people, right? So I so, so I think that um, unfortunately, you know, this question has turned into a counterproductive debate where different people mean different things. And and so I, I think I think what we should do is focus on the fact that the biology of aging is modifiable. We can do something about it. We can't cure it uh, yet, uh, but we can have a significant impact. We can keep people healthier longer by targeting that biology of aging. So so that's the important message, not everybody who's getting older is sick, right? Which is kind of the implication when you say aging is a disease. That makes so much sense. I love that. And, and so that being the case, if we know that we are all, you know, we, we all are aging, right? We can't, can't yeah. escape that. But we're all aging differently. You mentioned it. Our biology is yeah. different. Our, 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 you know, our, our genome code is differently different. What are some of the tactics and some of the some of the measures that like and, and I, I'm going to be selfish here while I've got you and your big brain. I'm 47. I'm at the midpoint of life. And and take this wherever you want. But what markers should I be looking for based on my genetic code, based on my age, to start to address that aging process to in fact slow the process? Yeah. Okay, good, good question. I'll come back to that. I, I want to touch on something you you said uh, a second ago, which is that everybody's aging differently, which is absolutely true. Um, but I think it's important to appreciate that that we're also all aging the same. And what I mean by that is there are underlying molecular biological processes that are fundamental to the biology of aging that every human being shares, right? Those processes, some people call it the damage that of aging, right? The, the 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 damage that accumulates, how that manifests itself is very individual, right? And mm -hmm. this is not a it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a, I think it's okay in this case. You could think about uh, an automobile that you don't really ever provide much maintenance on, right? And you drive it and drive it and drive it and drive it. The, the 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 specific parts that break might be different if you had a if you did that to a thousand different automobiles all of the same make and model right so the way that the consequences of the biology of aging manifest itself are different in different people and that's based on your genetics your environment and under environment that includes diet pollution you know all, all sorts of things that we are exposed to um 
So genetics, environment, and then there's this component of luck, right? Which I also think is important. There's this stochastic random component to aging that causes all of us, the, the specifics of how we age to be different, the way that we look, the functional declines we experience, whether we get cancer or heart disease or diabetes, right? But the underlying biology is the same across everybody. And in fact, it's the same across different animals. So pet dogs, for example, have the same biology of aging largely that people do. And the reason why I'm I'm explicitly mentioning this is because I think, again, getting back to the fact that aging is modifiable, it's that fundamental conserved aspect of aging biology that we can target to have positive impacts on health and longevity you know, in many, maybe all people, as well as companion animals and, and other types of animals. So that's important to appreciate. Um, okay, so then your your question, I, I think, was what should you be looking for in your own life to, to be thinking about and maybe to be able to modify about your own, your own biology of aging? And I sort of um, put this into two categories, right? There's number one, if your goal is to live as healthy, healthy as long as possible, you can't die, right? So that's 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 critical factor number one. You've got to stay alive, and so and so that's important to think about because that means that if you've got a potentially you know lethal disorder that could kill you in the next year or two, um, you need to know about it right now. So catching those things early is critically important, and that's where I think there is a big component of you know preventative health uh, approaches going to your physician regularly. People don't appreciate this, going to your dentist regularly. Oral health has a huge impact on health and the rest of the body. Um, if it's if it's something that is uh, appropriate for you, and I'm saying this because whether we like to admit it or not, there is a financial component here, right? So, you know, if it's within your, your wheelhouse uh, to be able to do something like whole body MRIs, right? Uh, uh, you can detect cancers very early that way, right? Genetic screening, right? So getting your genome sequenced, identifying what you're predisposed to. I, I, I'm, I'm saying this explicitly because again, I think it's really important for people to appreciate if you're going to get some form of cancer that's going to kill you in two years, you can do everything else right. And it's not going to matter because you're going to be dead in two years, right? So making sure that to the extent possible that you find those things early is really important. So that that's that's number one. Um, and then and then there are, you know, the the lifestyle modifications and things like rapamycin, which we can talk more about, that are that are the other side of the coin, right? In terms of maxim, potentially maximizing your health spend, doing everything you can to maximize your health spend. So what should you look for in yourself? I mean, I, I think anybody who's in their 40s or 50s or older, you know, you, you kind of know the answer, right? You recognize the declines in function, the aches and pains that go along with aging. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it, it's, Probably, I mean, you can tell me if you you disagree. I'm not sure it's useful to go through a laundry list of all the different things that you might be looking for to know that you're getting older. You're going to know. I think you can get a feel for how um, how well you're aging, what kind of trajectory you're on, you know, by comparing yourself to others in your sort of you know same socioeconomic and age category and kind of where you're at. We could talk about that too. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the United States, uh, most people are not very healthy as adults. And so, you know, um, I would say if you are average for your age at 45, 55, 
you're not doing very good if you live in the United States. There are lots of things that we should and could be doing better for population level health metrics in, in the United States. And this is true in, in other developed countries as well. And something you brought up there that I wanted to just ask kind of, and I guess it, it pertains, are, are you doing anything as far as um, public policy? Do you have any impact on public policy to out there on the Pacific Northwest to say, hey, if you guys are willing to listen, I'm willing to tell you the things yeah. that we should somehow incorporate into preventive care for the, the nation as a whole, because it's one of the things that frustrates me. I, I hate that these conversations tend to be limited to guys like you and I, you know, guys like me out in the world that listen to you, Peter Atia, David yeah. Sinclair, Tim Ferriss, whatever. I, this needs to be a broader conversation for the populace as a whole to be able to go, you don't have to wait until these horrible health issues come about. How can we collectively get together and, and, and start, and I, I realize, We've got to get people on board with looking at what you just said. Like I, I'm in, it, 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 it makes me frustrated. I want to say this with, in the right vein, I should not be as abnormal as I am for being in the good health yeah. I'm in. I should, yeah. I should just be normal because for me, it's just common sense. Are you able to affect public policy? Are you doing any work in that area? And if not, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, so, so I certainly would not, presume that I have any significant impact on public policy. Um, so it's something I think a lot about. I think like you, it it frustrates me. Um, you know, I'm 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 trying to do some work in this area, but I don't think it's to the point yet where it it's a significant impact. And I think there are, you know, some structural challenges that are going to make it very hard to have real impact at a population level in the areas of nutrition and um, exercise, which, which are, I mean, again, it's, this isn't going to shock anybody, but those are the two places where even a little bit of improvement uh, across the population would have huge economic, uh, and, and, uh, health benefits. Right. I, it, but there are, like I said, some real structural problems that, that make that extremely challenging, um, nutrition in particular, you know, for, for reasons that are complicated, uh, the, recommendations around nutrition have been terrible for the past as long as i've been alive i'm 51 they were terrible when i was a kid they're terrible now the the, the and i think that you know uh depending on who you talk to people will say it's either incompetence or corruption i don't know the answer to that i think there's right. probably a little bit of both but but the recommendations that people are getting from the health experts uh are 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 often wrong, uh, badly communicated. And then on top of that, you know, there's, there's the whole cultural structure of, uh, very high calorie, very low nutrition, crappy food that you can't escape. I mean, anywhere you go, almost you're, you're surrounded by this, right? I mean, if you sit down, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I like I love NFL football and I'll watch football games, right? Every other commercial you see is some terrible nutritional choice, right? <laughs> that gets thrown in front of you. You know, I had I had coffee at, at Starbucks um yesterday. And and again, I'm not bashing Starbucks. This is true everywhere, right? But it's like a freaking candy store. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. I take my coffee black, I don't put sugar in it. I know that's a, that's a healthy decision. I wanted something to eat because it was around lunchtime. The only thing I could find that was even halfway healthy was like this plastic dish that had eggs, grapes, 
you know, I've uh, gone for that on the road myself. Right. (laughs) So again, it's, it's ridiculous, right. That you go to something that is you as ubiquitous as Starbucks. I mean, how many millions of people every day, you know, get a meal or two at their Starbucks. That's the only choice in that entire place that isn't absolutely a terrible nutritional choice. So so again, I'm just stating a problem, but I do think it's something that, you know, you and I recognize this, like I'm telling you this and you're like, yeah, I get it. That's exactly, I've thought the same thing, right? Most people don't, they don't realize that their entire day often is being presented with nutritional choices that, that, you know, they're, they're almost forced into these bad decisions that have, you know, long-term pretty negative health consequences. And I would say, have very negative consequences on just their appreciation and quality of life. You, and, and the other thing I would say is, you know, there's this whole question around um, addiction. So a lot of people will say sugar is a, is is addictive. I'm not going to wade into that because that word addiction has some connotations that, again, it's kind of like this question of is aging a disease, right? It, it, it can distract from the important message. But, you know, absolutely, um, eating very high calorie, sugary, simple sugar foods is a bad habit. And, and most people don't recognize that. So, so I don't know what the answer is. There are lots of people out there, you know, banging this drum and saying this message, but I do unfortunately feel like it's a bit of an echo chamber sometime. And the same people are saying that message to each other. I don't know what the answer is in terms of getting that message out to the general public in a way that they will I think getting them to understand it is pretty straightforward, getting them to internalize it and accept it and having that message be able to to cut through the sort of constant bomb- bombarding with, with bad health options. It's a really hard problem. I, about the only thing I can think of that, that, that is likely to have a big impact is a real sort of public policy movement, you know, like what was done for cigarettes. That 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 worked, right? It took a while. But eventually it worked. You see a lot fewer people smoking cigarettes today than you did, you know, when I was a kid. That kind of a public policy movement could have a real impact here. I'm not sure there's the appetite for that yet. Maybe someday there will be. And again, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of companies are making a lot of money off of giving people bad nutritional choices. Um, so, you know, I, that's kind of a downer, unfortunately, but, but that's the world we live in right now. So yeah, I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't kid myself that it's likely that I'm going to be able to have a big impact, but I think it's something that, you know, those of us who are aware and think it's important should continue to talk about. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned the, uh, watching NFL in the same way I, I'll watch college football and then a couple of football games. That's the only time I ever see commercials. And it's just, I, I remember here recently, I wrote about it in my newsletter about watching one of these Arby's commercials. And I'm like, Holy crap, you can go crush 1500 calories, exert no energy to get it. You know, you don't have to hunt, yeah. you don't have to do anything. It's so the antithesis of what we were designed for. And then another thing, because this just occurred to me this morning, because I, I would like to at least touch on the dog project and then possibly have a longer conversation about that. Because if I don't talk about that to you, my wife is going to be really upset <laughs> because we have yeah. a dog that is her her child that she's like, I want to know all about it. And if, and if he can be a part of the study, let's let's get caught in some rapamycin. But anyway, um, but I thought about this this morning in, in preparation for this conversation. I was like, Think of the things that we will not let our dogs eat, but we consume. 
And because we know yeah. what the dog would do if we put it in, and that granted, different gut track, all those different things, but still, it is quite amazing. And you touched on something there. So at a high level, just kind of for the universality of this audience, you mentioned it's as easy as exercise and nutrition. And one of the things I'm excited about, and the reason why I led with the question I did is because that's a question that when I first heard you and Sinclair start really kind of touching on this whole idea that aging is something that we don't just have to accept the symptoms and address the symptoms, but we can do more preventive care and slow that process along the way. I just learned about that, Matt, or, you know, two years ago, and I'm a pretty healthy yeah. guy, yeah. you know, so to get that to the fore is incredible. And then whenever you start looking at the impact of just exercise on on your your lifespan and then all cause mortality I, whenever i started learning about that i was or all, all, all cause morbidity i guess i was like oh my gosh that's amazing so touch a little bit before we get into the the cellular level and that that level let's just talk about real high level tell this give this audience some 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 idea of just what adding exercise to their to their to their daily protocol can do for them as it relates to slowing the aging process. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and again, you know, my, my views on this have, have modified over the last 15, 20 years. Right. So, so I would say today it is my belief that exercise is the single most effective thing that, that most people can do to, uh, enhance their quality of life now and maximize their likelihood of maintaining health as long as possible later into life. It's not, it's not a cure all, right? If you eat a terrible diet and exercise, you know, you're still not doing as well as you could do, but if you're going to do one thing, that's the one I would, I would point to. And again, I think, you know, this isn't, this isn't perfect, but we can roughly think of exercise in two bins, right? There's cardiovascular training, and that can be low intensity, medium intensity, high intensity. I'm just going to put it all in one bin for now for simplicity. And the other would be resistance training. The, the primary difference there, and by resistance training, I mean lifting weights, right? Just again, to make it simple. Um, <clears throat> the primary difference there is that resistance training is going to help you build and maintain muscle mass. Cardiovascular training in general isn't. And again, that's an oversimplification, but it's close enough. So I think you need both to, to, to optimize the situation. How is that helping you from in the context of aging? Okay, there are a variety of mechanisms at play here, and we could get into the sort of molecular details. But I think, again, for simplicity, as we get older, this is true in, in everybody. It's one of those things that everybody shares, although the, 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 the magnitude of the effect is different in different individuals. As we get older, we lose muscle mass, okay? That's why elderly people have less strength than younger people do. And the loss of muscle mass with age has a huge impact on quality of life and your likelihood of having a severe injury. Um, and, and, the and, and we lose bone density as well, um, particularly women, this is true. And again, the consequence of that is a higher risk of fractures, breaks, things like that. So the best thing you can do to maintain muscle mass and bone density as you're getting older is resistance training, in, in my view. Um, and so I think that from, from that perspective, it's pretty easy to see how if you don't do any sort of resistance exercise, you are at a much higher risk of fractures, falls, muscle, uh, 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 muscle loss, 
um, and reduced function. And, and this is called sarcopenia. So the loss of muscle mass with age, that's one of the greatest predictors of mortality. So from a very simple perspective, resistance training will offset that. And it's the best thing we've got for offsetting that cardiovascular training is going to reduce your likelihood of having some sort of major cardiovascular event, like a heart attack, like a stroke. Obviously, um, there's a bunch of evidence that, that, uh, having better circulation is reduces your chance of dementia. So, so again, it's very clear, right. That, that, that exercise can impact quality and quantity of life. I would say, you know, again, this is hard to do in epidemiological studies in humans, but the impact is probably on the order of a decade, especially wow. if you combine it with a, with a good diet. So this is my sort of back of the envelope calculation. If you're a typical American, and unfortunately now typical means obese, um, who doesn't exercise very much, if you if you just put in a regular exercise regimen, you're probably going to have on average a five to ten year impact on your your longevity, and that that's going to be quality years of life as well as quantity. If you combine that with you know what I would consider a reasonable diet you might be even up to 15 to, to, to 20 years. So it's really unfortunate, in a sense, the impact of having no exercise and, and a typical American diet has on healthy longevity. And, and um, so again, I would say the average person, 10 years to 15 years, if you combine a reasonable diet and a reasonable exercise regimen. The other thing I'd say is I think people get scared off by, you know, the idea that, oh, I have to eat a really, you know, a diet that's no fun and exercise is hard and I can't spend two hours a day at the gym. You don't have to do that, right? We're not talking about, you know, uh, levels of commitment that are sort of the extreme. I think just a, a pretty reasonable effort at reducing, you know, the, the, the really bad food that people eat and a little bit of exercise every day can have a big impact. So you can get 80% of the benefit with 20% of the work. And then, and then often what happens, this has been my observation, the people who put that in, they feel better. And then it's pretty easy to think about the next level and the next level. And sometimes people get hooked, right? And they're, they're like, okay, I feel so good. Now I want to do a little better and I want to do a little better, but you don't have to start there. And I think that's a really important message there's nothing to be scared of. This is something that almost anybody can do. It's really just about changing a few habits and then and then you can get most of the benefit. Well, and one of the things that you brought up that I want to touch on just a little bit before we move forward is this idea of the, the, how important resistance training is. Uh, my mom suffered a stroke here about three years ago. And one of the things that I told her, I said, hey, look, don't listen to me. I'm not the expert. Listen to your physical therapist. But I, I'm hoping they're telling you that more than anything right now, to the degree you can, you have to build strength. She's 72. Yes. And that, that is the most important thing because talk a little bit about the, okay, kind of taking a linear approach to this. If you don't have healthy bone density, you have a, you fall, you break your hip. Yeah. The, the morbidity after that, when I started hearing these statistics yes. that I would like you to kind of dig into, it shocked me. And I think this audience that especially those who are older who think, wait a minute, I'm 55, I get up and I have a little group and we do our cardio and everything. If you're not doing some sort of resistance training and you're not practicing just standing up and down, up and down, whatever, to keep your lower body as, as healthy as possible with whatever resistance you can get, 
that's kind of shocking the the effects of that low bone density and you have a a, a broken hip in particular which is a pretty common one right yep yep and yeah so you're absolutely right and i i I should, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but you're right, they are shocking. Um, there's a really good uh, Ask Me Anything episode that Peter Atia did recently on bone density where he goes into the statistics. And I mean, the, it's something like, you know, if, if you are above the age of, let's just say 60 and you fall and you have a hip fracture, the survival is is months, right? Yeah. The average survival, right? I mean, it's really, it's really a, a poor uh, outcome a high likelihood of a very poor outcome if you fall and have a hip fracture when you're elderly, maybe it's 70, but, but regardless, that's the take-home message. And the likelihood of that happening, right, um, uh, is directly related to muscle function and bone density, right? So muscle function is going to drive the likelihood of falling in the first place, because um, if you don't have much strength, you're more likely to have accidents like that. And if you have low bone density and you do fall, you're very likely to get a fracture or, or a break somewhere in your body, right? So those two things are, that that's the connection, right? Between the likelihood of falling, getting a fracture. And if that happens when you're older, there's two, probably two reasons for this. One is, again, as we get older, your ability to heal uh, is greatly impaired. And that's driven by chronic inflammatory processes and stem cell dysfunction, probably. Um, so you're, you're, first of all, unlikely if you do survive to ever fully regain function. And then you're in an, a state where your, your biological system is not, doesn't have the resilience that it had when you were younger. So by resilience, I mean the ability to come back from damage. And so when you fall, your, 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 your physiology is unable to, to uh, rebound. And, and for whatever reason, I don't think we completely understand this, People then, if you're not able, if you're not resilient and able to rebound, you go down this sort of, you know, spiraling decline where at the end it's, it's, it's in dramatically impaired function and, and eventually death. And so that, those are the observations. And so, yeah, you know, again, um, I try to be fairly high level. I think exercise, any exercise is better than no exercise. My personal view is that if you're, if you're not going to do both some level of cardiovascular training and resistance training, I would focus on the resistance training for exactly the, the, the reason you just mentioned. Maintaining muscle mass with age is really, really important. And resistance training is the best way to do that. And then on top of that, we know that resistance training also improves bone density. And so those two things in parallel um, are, are, you know, really valuable, especially when you're over the age of, of 60. And again, I think it's important. People get you know, for a variety of reasons, people get scared by resistance training. They think of, you know, bodybuilders or power lifters in the gym, you know, grunting and, and all of that. Um, you don't, you don't have to go to that level, right? You can no. do pushups, right? I, again, I think it's, it, it's important for people to appreciate that um, you don't have to be at the extreme end of the spectrum in terms of the effort that you put in to get a, a lot of the benefits. And so um, there are, are a variety of types of resistance exercise that you can do that don't necessarily involve, you know, going into the gym and doing free weights. Although I will say, I think a lot of people, if they actually got into the gym and tried free weights for six months, they would find that there's no reason to be intimidated. And in fact, you know, you, you can you can get a, a huge amount of benefits from a very 
you know, moderate intensity free weight lifting regimen. Um, so if I was going to recommend something to most people, that would be my first recommendation. Could not agree more. And, you know, one of the things that I used to be the type that, you know, just kind of to echo what you're saying, I used to think I had to kill myself and burn a thousand calories every morning before the sun came up. Yeah. And until I started doing a lot of like kind of my, I guess my virtual trainer would be Ben Greenfield. I, I subscribe to the ladder app. I do a lot of my own stuff, but you just resistance bands. Those are one of the yeah. most magical things in the world. You pack those in your bag and you go. And I mean, I, the heaviest weight I have in my garage is a 45 pound dumbbell. Now I do a lot of pushups and pull-ups, but still to your point, it doesn't take that much. And all right. So and that was one of the things that was a big surprise to me because I got into this point for a while where it was all cardio. And that's why I wanted you to bring that. I wanted to bring that element yeah. up and have you say it because you're the expert. When I started hearing the impact of resistance training, I look five years ago as someone who has lifted weights all his life, but was getting older. I thought, well, as long as I'm crushing a lot of jump rope, Peloton, you know, long walks, cardiovascular, I'm good. Not realizing that not only is it important to to maintain strength now, but to build it for the, it's kind of building up like a retirement account because when we're older, it's so much harder, not just to maintain, but to build muscle in those ladders, kind of about where I am, right? I mean, at 47, yeah. that's where I'm kind of on the downhill slide. So I've got to maintain. <laughs> and if I can add, I'm doing well, because at some point, I'm just not going to be able to add the mass. It, it, you know, am I right about that? Uh, yeah, you, you are. I mean, I would say it gets harder for sure, right? It gets harder to add new muscle mass as you get older. I, I, again, where that, where that, so you said you're on the downhill slide. Um, well, psychologically, I would get out of that, get out of that mental yeah. No, I, see, I think I'm 25. <laughs> I think I'm 25. I just know that, look, I yeah. got to work. So, I got to keep going. So I don't I think it's it. no, no, no. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's important to be honest with ourselves. I've said this before, right? I'm, I'm 51. Um, uh, and you know, in a lot of ways, functionally, I'm not where I was when I was 25, right? That's just the reality, but you can still do a lot at, oh, yeah. at any age. You, you can, you can get, you can get significant benefits, uh, from things like changing your nutrition and implementing an, uh, uh, an exercise strategy. Um, but the, one of the things I think that's interesting, and this has been uh, uh, one of the very uh, positive things I think that's come out of research in the biology of aging in the last 10 years, I would say, is you know, what we're learning is that um, if, you can, if you can modify the physiology of an aged animal or an aged person appropriately, you can actually restore some function that's been lost from a biological perspective. And, you know, again, the mechanisms aren't completely clear, but I think, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that as we get older, we uh, have a pretty dramatic increase in chronic inflammation or, or what I, what I, what I and others would, would call sterile inflammation. And what I mean by that is this is your, so inflammation is just your immune system, right? Yeah. 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 Hi hyperactivated or activated immune system. Inflammation's good if you've got a, a a bacterial infection, right? Or a viral infection. We want our immune system to to target that infection and take care of it. As we get older, our immune system starts um responding inappropriately to a variety of things, um, including our own bodies. So people have heard of autoimmunity, right? That's all we mean is your immune system targeting aspects of your own body. So I think one of the things that 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 the field has um, understood over the past few decades is to some extent aging is a an autoimmune disorder or at least there is an increase in autoimmunity as we get older 
And that causes many of the functional declines or contributes to many of the functional declines of aging. It also contributes to disease risk like cancer. And we can talk about the mechanisms there, which are really interesting. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm going down this path is because, you know, I think that this increase in sterile inflammation with age, one of the consequences of that is that the stem cells that are in our tissues can't function very well when they're in this chronic inflamed environment. And so if we can knock that inflammatory environment down, then our stem cells, which are okay, they're, they're functionally all right, intrinsically, they just can't function in that environment. When we can make that inflamed environment better, then the stem cells can actually do their jobs. And the observation is when you do that, you actually regain function because the stem cells themselves can regenerate, restore tissues, uh, and those tissues then can function more like a young tissue. So the reason why I'm going into this is that, again, I think one of the, one of the things that is useful for people to understand is even if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even, if you're at a place that isn't great right now from a health perspective, you know, as long as you don't have a disease that's going to kill you, um, there's opportunities to actually regain some of that lost function. And, and that's a very uh, that's a very inspiring, at least for me, message to to be able to, to understand. And, and I have to say, I was a little surprised by this. If, if you had asked me 15 years ago, some of these interventions like rapamycin, um, which we haven't talked about yet, but, but, but we will, um, that seemed to it target the biology of aging, increase lifespan and health span in laboratory animals. If you had asked me, are those, how are those working? I would have said, well, they're just slowing the declines with aging, right? In other words, if you start the treatment in an old mouse that's already seen a decline in function, you can slow that further decline, but you're not actually going to reverse the declines that have already happened. That would have been my prediction. The observation is pretty clear. You can actually restore function if you start rapamycin treatment in an old mouse. You can make a heart function like a young heart. You can make an immune system function like a young immune system. You can make an ovary function like a young ovary. I mean, it's pretty amazing that in multiple tissues, you can restore function with, with, with just a treatment with a single drug. Same thing is true with exercise to a, to a, it's a little bit harder to do these kinds of exercise studies in laboratory animals. But I think if you look at people, we can see evidence for the same kinds of rejuvenating effects. That word is a little bit loaded. So I'm a little hesitant to use the word rejuvenation, but I think that's actually what we're seeing is partial restoration of function, partial rejuvenating effects from resistance training, for example. You can gain function that you had lost simply by instituting something like resistance training. Sure, there will probably come a point where it is harder to regain that function. And there probably will come a point where it's not possible to regain that function. But again, at least in laboratory animals with something like rapamycin, we haven't found that point yet. So again, my speculation, and this might be wrong, my speculation is that as long as you don't have a terminal disease like cancer that you know has escaped the biology of aging and become a pathology on its own, it's possible to actually partially restore function in many tissues and organs by targeting that biology of aging. See, and I think so much of what you said there should excite so many people because, and, and that's what I've seen personally. I mean, I, um, I, I have to believe, and I was a, you know, I was an athlete growing up, college athlete. I have to believe that my VO2 max and I know my lean body mass is my markers are better now than they were. Now, granted to yeah. your point, I know I, if I were to go out onto the football field today, I would not recover nearly as quickly as I did whenever I was, you know, 18, 19 years yeah. old. 
Yeah. But, you know, with sprinting every day and doing these things, I, there has been a regenerative effect. And that's what I think is so exciting. And when we get into this conversation, and, and this, that's a perfect setup, because what I want to start with as we go into the nutritional aspect of it, and then targeting the the inflammation, because that is something that I have really done a really, really deep dive on is yep. steering macrophages and making sure to start in the gut and maintaining proper glucose levels, all in an effort to boost the immune system and to lower inflammation. You'll keep the, keep the red guys at bay, the blue guys just kind of cleaning up and, you know, uh, keeping everything kind of in order. And so, but I, to, to, so to start this conversation, unless you say, no, Jason, we should start somewhere else. <laughs> let's talk about uh, calorie restriction as yep. a way to start to chip away at that strategy for lowering uh, inflammation. And also, let's just define some terms. You know, when people hear calorie restriction, that can mean intermittent fasting. That can mean right. long-term fasting. That can mean right. just, you know, eating less, you know, 25% less calories today. So you please define the terms of caloric restriction and then just take that and wherever you want to into this idea of keeping inflammation down and having healthier markers nutritionally. Sure. So um, I think maybe a useful place to start is with what we know from laboratory studies. And, and, and I think this is important because um, things like caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, then there's ketogenic diet, protein restriction. There's all these sort of variants of caloric restriction that people are excited about right. in some ways have become fad diets sure. now. Um, what we know in laboratory animals, I think is pretty clear. The story there is pretty clear and I'll lay that out. The extent to which what we see in laboratory animals and primarily I mean mice to some extent, older studies with rats, these are rodent models. Um, the, the, the extent to which that is going to work the same way in people is very unclear. And I think it's just important for people to, to appreciate that. I think in some ways, laboratory models like mice and rats can be very, very good at giving us insights into human biology. In this case, I'm especially with the nutritional strategies, I'm less less convinced. And we can talk about why that is as well if, if you're interested. So, okay, sure. so that's the preface. So what do we know in, in laboratory animals? So caloric restriction, I would define as a reduction in overall caloric intake. Probably the easiest way to think about it is just straight across the board, whatever diet you're eating, eating less of it, right? Okay. Reduction in overall caloric intake in the absence of malnutrition. So we have to make sure that all of the vitamins and micronutrients are you know, at at least a, a, an acceptable level, if not an optimal level. So reduction in calories without malnutrition. The observations, and this goes back to the 1930s actually, believe it or not, um, in both rats and mice, is that caloric restriction up to about 60%, gives uh, an increase in population average and maximum lifespan by a roughly comparable amount to the to the re level of restriction. And what I mean by that is a 20% restriction, 20% increase in population lifespan, 40% restriction, 40% increase in population lifespan. So it can have that effect, okay? Wow. That's been seen dozens of studies in both rats and mice. Um, so a couple things to recognize there. One is I'm I've I've been specific in saying population lifespan. So that's an average across all of the individuals in this population. It doesn't mean that every single individual gets that benefit. Right. Okay. That's important to appreciate. 
And these studies are, are with just a couple of exceptions done in what are called inbred lab strains. And, and what that means is they're very genetically um, homogeneous. Every individual is genetically very much like every other individual in that population. So one question is, does caloric restriction work in all genetic backgrounds? And the answer without question is no. So people have looked at this. There are many genetic backgrounds where you won't see any benefit on lifespan from a 40% reduction in calories. And again, this is a little bit speculative, but in mice and also in simpler laboratory animals like flies and, and nematode worms and yeast, when you look across a bunch of different genetic backgrounds, about one third of the genetic backgrounds show either no benefit from a given caloric restriction regimen or actually have their lifespan shortened. And the reason why I'm going into this is because even with pure caloric restriction, which is the gold standard for longevity intervention, nutritional longevity intervention in, in laboratory studies, there are a significant fraction of genetic backgrounds that are harmed by that intervention. Is there a correlation so then, of those groups, Matt? Or is there like geographically? Um, oh, so you're asking what is, what is the underlying mechanism there? Oh, I don't think it has anything to do with geography, like which lab is doing it. I think it has no, no, to no. do with these. Or just the, the, the actual, like this group, for some reason, yeah. caloric restriction is either harmful for or has no impact. And yeah, what are the mechanisms there? Yeah, we yeah. don't know. I would okay. say it, it, it um, there's reason to believe that that uh, mitochondrial function is critically important. And again, for people who don't maybe don't know what that means, you probably have heard of mitochondria as the powerhouses of the cell. This is where a lot of the key metabolic reactions, chemical reactions happen in the cell. Um, their mitochondria do a lot of other stuff too, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's useful to think of them as the key metabolic powerhouse of the cell where a lot of the energy is derived. Turns out that there's lots of variation in mitochondrial structure and, and function based on your genotype, your DNA. And that seems to play a really important role in the response of individuals. Again, this is laboratory study, so we're not talking about people laboratory animals to caloric restriction. So intuitively that makes a lot of sense, right? Caloric restriction is gonna dramatically rewire metabolism. If you have a different variant of the way you handle that rewiring of metabolism, you could get lots of benefits, but you could also be harmed if you if your mitochondria can't respond to caloric restriction, you know, properly, whatever that means. Um, so I think, but that's probably the, the key feature is differences in mitochondrial function. One observation has been in laboratory mice that, that strains that are able to retain body fat under caloric restriction tend to do better. So, and again, that also is kind of makes sense, right? If you are, if you, if you're a person and now I'm speculating, I'm going from the mice to the people, but if you're a person where when you restrict calories by, let's say you have a 500 calorie deficit every day and you just drop fat like crazy, you could imagine why over the long term that would be detrimental, right? Absolutely. And you might actually have your lifespan shortened. So Absolutely. there's going to, the whole reason why I'm going into this is, you know, that the, the, the proponents of caloric restriction or these other fad diets like intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but I, I do believe these are fads. I'm not sure they'll be here 10 years from now, um, or at least talked about as much. The proponents of those things tend to ignore the fact that in laboratory studies, which are highly controlled, there's a significant fraction of the population that is actually harmed by these interventions. We don't know that that's going to be true in people, but it's possible. It seems likely, certainly, that different individuals are going to respond to caloric restriction 
differently. And some people are going to be harmed. I'm absolutely well, certain of that. If you're talking and, about true caloric restriction. And Matt, isn't that because, and this is another thing that a lot of people don't even understand, is that there's such a thing as a, a healthy fat cell and a damaged fat cell. If you have inflamed fat, that can be a problem. And a lot of that comes from, and, and you, again, this is where you can say, hey, Jason, you're you know a little over your yeah. head. But it's if you are constantly, like you just mentioned, shedding that fat really quickly, then you get it, then you gain again, you can have damaged fat cells. So you're actually wouldn't that cause an inflamed fat that could be harmful? Right. So, so you're getting into a, 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 I think what you're referring to is a sort of idea of yo-yo dieting or gaining and losing, yeah. losing weights. Yeah. So again, if we go back to the laboratory studies, this is another place where the laboratory animals and people are very different, right? Okay. So in the laboratory, those animals get what we've give them, right? They don't have the opportunity to yo-yo diet. They yeah. can't, you know, lose, lose weight from caloric restriction and then eat overeat. This is part of the reason why I'm also a little bit concerned about extrapolating from the laboratory studies to humans. Humans are weird animals, right? We're in this sort of crazy social environment, right? There's all sorts of psychological consequences to trying to restrict calories, um, uh, social consequences to restricting calories. We're in this complicated environment where we're exposed to pathogens. So, so yeah, I think I think that in people, um, long-term caloric restriction probably isn't the solution. Uh, you know, I think it's very hard. This is, I'm going to say something obvious, but it's very hard for most people to, from wherever they're at today, restrict calories by 40% for the rest of their life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that um, psychological so it's just, impact. It's, it's, yeah. The psychological effects, the social consequences, the, yeah. you know, being, being bombarded with all these smells and sights of good, you know, food. Um, it's just really hard. So that's a, that's something we can't, we can't recapitulate in laboratory studies. So that's completely missing. But even without that complication, it's useful to appreciate that there are, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30% of genetic backgrounds, even under the very, very controlled conditions where caloric restriction is harmful. About 30% either no effect or, or harmful. Okay, so that's caloric restriction, right? That is from, from whatever the animals would eat if given, you know, free access to food, which is probably a pretty good model for most people in the United States, um, from starting from that point, you know, reducing it by 30, 40% for the rest of their lives. So then what about things like intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, ketogenic diet, protein restriction? I'm going to put all of those in one bucket for now, but they very much are not the same thing. Those are very, very different variants on caloric restriction. Um, the, the one thing I'm going to say that is universal across all of those interventions is when you look in the laboratory studies, you can find publications where they report lifespan extension from, from all of those variants of caloric restriction. The universality there is none of those, okay, almost none of the studies that report lifespan extension are isocaloric. And what I mean by that is the intervention group, the dietary intervention group eat the, ate the same number of calories as the control group. Almost without exception, those are caloric restriction studies where they have also implemented intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, ketogenic diet where they've changed the composition. Okay, so the question is, and that's, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I just got done spending 10, 15 minutes telling you that caloric restriction can extend lifespan. The question is, if you take out the caloric restriction part, but you leave in the intermittent fasting, the time-restricted feeding, the ketogenic diet, what is the effect on lifespan? I would say this hasn't been done well, 
there's are a few hints that um, isocaloric intermittent fasting can have a tiny, tiny effect on lifespan in mice. By tiny, I mean about 5%, maybe at the high end, 10%. So caloric restriction, you can get up to 60% lifespan extension. Maybe you can squeeze out five to 10% lifespan extension from isocaloric intermittent fasting. And I say maybe because it's not completely clear that those were true isocaloric experiments. So I think the thing that people need to appreciate when they, you know, again, when the diet scientists turn diet gurus, get out there and tell them you should do intermittent fasting, there can be some benefits from intermittent fasting. Don't get me wrong. The longevity benefits it's a little bit dishonest to claim that this has been shown to have big longevity benefits in laboratory animals because you also have to caloric restrict. So, so just doing intermittent fasting, but not losing weight, it's a little bit less clear that that's truly having, you know, profound longevity benefits based on the laboratory studies. There certainly could be benefits in people. I believe there probably are some benefits just from the intermittent fasting component or time restricted feeding, but it's not so clear that you're really having a big impact on the biology of aging. So this has gotten presented a little bit, you know, it's been a little bit dishonest the way this has gotten into the mainstream sort of perception that, okay, we don't necessarily have to restrict calories. If we just restrict when we eat the calories, we can get all these benefits. Not so clear. Um, uh, really, I think the data is, is, is if anything, it, it tilts the other way. You probably aren't getting very big benefits just from restricting when you eat, you also have to restrict how much you eat. Sorry, <laughs> but I think it's important for people to understand. Yeah, that's the that's one of the studies I wanted to bring up to you because I guess it was was it Sasha and Panda that did the study that they had some impact on by just changing when the feeding happened, but it doesn't say anything about what these people were eating before. I don't think it did. And I don't yeah, even there, if you look across the whole breadth of literature that's out there. Um, there are studies showing both directions. So first of all, most of these studies are short-term studies in people who are already obese. Um, and there are studies showing both directions, showing there are some studies that show some potential short-term benefits. There are actually some, some studies that show some potential short-term harm just from time-restricted feeding. So again, I'm not, the, 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 these interventions will have biological effects. And I, I do absolutely believe, particularly things like intermittent fasting, and let me, for definitional purposes, tell you how I think about this. Yeah, I would put time restricted feeding. I would call that, you know, shrinking the window of time in any 24 hour period in which you consume your calories. Right. I would call intermittent fasting a fast of more than 24 hours. Right. Okay. So different people can use different, different, different definitions. That's how I think about it. Okay. So both of those things, intermittent fasting and time restricted feeding will, will have biological effects. They are absolutely going to have an impact on cellular, molecular, tissue biology. It's just really, really unclear whether or not they're having significant impacts on the biology of aging over the long term, certainly. Um, and the laboratory studies suggest that if they are, they're very small. So, so I personally don't feel like that should be the, at least the core part of a longevity wellness regimen. I think for some people, it can be quite effective. Honestly, I think the, the, the most effective aspect of time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting is that for some people, it can help them lose weight, can help them do caloric restriction, right? Um, and that's absolutely true. For some people, they can be quite beneficial. I'm just not so sure that they're likely to have much of a positive impact in the long run if you're not also 
calorically restricting. And then this all kind of goes out the window. This is what you were alluding to. It's also not at all clear that something like time-restricted feeding is going to have any impact if you're eating crap, right? Exactly. So it's got to be part of a you know more uh, thoughtful nutritional strategy. Right. Okay. Now that we've talked about how essentially we've, we've, we've just to kind of, you know, do, do the bidding here, exercise resistance training, it, it basically just eat good whole foods. Yeah. And, well, don't and, eat, and, and let's don't eat come back to one thing before, before we move on. Cause I completely yeah. avoided the inflammation part of what you asked me, right. Which is, you know, how does caloric restriction impact oh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. inflammation? So yeah. there's actually really interesting um, biology here where we know that caloric restriction and, and certainly fasting as well um, can modify biological targets that are directly involved in this sterile inflammatory process that goes wrong with, with aging. And there are, there are, this is a complicated network of interacting proteins, but one of the really important ones is mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin. That's actually the protein that the drug rapamycin inhibits. So mTOR is a uh, central nutrient sensor in every cell in our bodies. Every animal has mTOR in every cell of, of, of their bodies. And basically one of the things that mTOR does is it senses the amount of food that's available in the environment um, and then makes a fundamental decision for the cell, which is grow or don't grow, right? And it turns out that when you restrict calories, you inhibit mTOR, that decision which shifts from growth to no growth is a powerful anti-inflammatory signal. So we know that if you treat with rapamycin, which is an inhibitor of mTOR, or you restrict calories, which is a an inhibitor of mTOR because there's not that nutrient signal, that has a potent anti-inflammatory effect. In fact, rapamycin, the drug, was first approved by the FDA to prevent organ transplant rejection, right? So it's called an immunosuppressant. It's probably not a true immunosuppressant um, by itself, mm -hmm. but it is absolutely anti-inflammatory. And immune suppression is anti-inflammatory. Remember, we said inflammation is hyperactivation of your immune system. So, so probably one of the key ways that caloric restriction or intermittent fasting can have an anti-inflammatory effect is by turning down mTOR. In other words, rapamycin in some ways is mimicking that aspect of caloric restriction or intermittent fasting. Okay. And I think that brings us to a great place to let's, let's talk a little bit about rapamycin because th there's a great chance that better than 60% of this audience has never even if they've heard of rapamycin, it's just that they've heard of it, but don't yeah. know the origins yeah. of it. And what blows me away, Matt, is that rapamycin is a relatively new discovery, is, at least for an, from a, from an application standpoint. So feel free to kind of, as, as much as you've got time for, to the timeline of rapamycin and now some of the exciting uses for it in this regard and, sure. and why you're excited about it and what your research has yielded. Yeah. So, I mean, rapamycin, you know, as you alluded to, is is a, it's a super interesting drug. Um, it was actually first discovered on Easter Island, you know, probably four decades ago um, from soil samples there. And um, there's a, actually, I don't have time to go into it. There's a really interesting backstory on rapamycin, the discovery, how it, you know, was initially being studied. And then the company shut that down and it was stored in, in the guy's freezer who discovered it for several years and then brought back out. So anyways, um, so that's super interesting. It was originally developed uh, <clears throat> both for its antifungal and anti-cancer properties. And if we go back to what I just got done saying is, you know, mTOR, the protein that rapamycin inhibits 
is kind of the gatekeeper for cell division versus not dividing growth and no growth. And that's a nutrient signal that, that drives that. So it makes perfect sense that a drug that inhibits mTOR and pushes the cell towards no growth, not dividing, would have antifungal. So what are we trying to do with antifungal? We're trying to stop fungal cells from dividing, from growing. Or anti-cancer, what are we doing with anti-cancer? We're trying to stop cancer cells from dividing, right? So that, it makes perfect sense that that's how the drug would be developed initially. Um, and it turns out rapamycin is a really, really potent antifungal. Cancer, it's got mixed effects. Some cancers it's really useful for, others it's not so useful for. And the biology there makes sense, but probably um, peripheral to this discussion. So it turns out how it was actually then moved forward clinically was as uh, an organ transplant drug, an immune suppressant. And again, if you think about an, an, an uh, immune function, right? One of the things that immune cells have to do is they have to be able to proliferate and divide in order to then target the the whatever the signal is that they're they're targeting. So anti so rapamycin in combination with other strong immune suppressants can help uh, organ transplant patients not reject their transplanted organ. That's how it was first FDA approved. I think this was the mid nineties, maybe late nineties that it was first approved uh, for organ transplant rejection. And just to, just again, this is a little bit of a confusing aspect of rapamycin. In the clinical world, this, it's called sirolimus, S-I-R-O-L-I-M-U-S. So it's exactly the same molecule, different name. So if people have heard of it as sirolimus, that's rapamycin, rapamycin is sirolimus. Also goes by rapamine, that's the brand generic version of rapamycin. Okay, so that's how it was first approved. People were continued to study rapamycin for that purpose. Um, other people in basic research discovered that rapamycin was an inhibitor of mTOR, which I've also talked about. Nobody was thinking about this in the context of aging or health span. Um, um, everybody was thinking about it as a cancer or, or immune uh, drug. So back in the, this was the, the early 2000s, right? So I, um, I was just finishing my PhD and just started my postdoc. Um, three or four different labs simultaneously kind of stumbled on mTOR as an important target for the biology of aging. And these were all studies that were being done in simple invertebrate models in the laboratory. So in my case, I was working in yeast, which is a single-celled organism. Other people were working in C. elegans, which is a nematode worm. Other people were working in flies. And all of us simultaneously, again, this was around 2003, stumbled on mTOR as an important target. Um, at least I say we stumbled on it because we weren't thinking about mTOR at all. We were doing what's called an unbiased genetic screen where we, we were just looking to see what affected lifespan. Um, other people were probably smarter and thought mTOR might be important. We got lucky. So we found it. We found that if you knock down mTOR, you could increase lifespan. And so I remember, you know, as soon as we got that data, I go looking uh, and in the literature and I'm like, what does mTOR do? There's this drug, rapamycin, that's an inhibitor of mTOR. We knew that if we turned down mTOR genetically, we could extend lifespan. Maybe rapamycin would extend lifespan. It turns out it did. So again, this happens in science sometimes where for you know reasons that I don't quite understand, multiple different groups coming from completely different directions yeah. hit on the same target right around the same time. So we all published papers 2003, 2004 that inhibiting mTOR could extend lifespan. And about five years later, uh, another study from the National Institute on Aging came out showing that in mice, late life treatment with rapamycin could extend lifespan. And by that point, you know, I think people really started to get excited, both because rapamycin extended lifespan across these very, very different 
models in the laboratory. And because you could start the treatment in middle age and get most of the benefits from the wow. drug. Yeah. So, um, so it's really just been in the last, you know, 15 years or so that, that people have really started to try to dive into why rapamycin is having these effects, all the different things it can do in addition to extending lifespan, which I alluded to earlier, pretty much every tissue or organ in a mouse where you look, you can see either a delay in functional declines with rapamycin or in at least a few cases now, a reversal of functional declines when you start the treatment in middle age. And that's what's got me the most excited about the potential translational applications here is you can start with an animal, you know, it's maybe the mouse equivalent of a 60, 65 year old person. You can significantly extend lifespan from that point, but you can also restore some of the lost function in very different tissues. So the tissues and organs where this has been seen most, I, I think um, clearly, are the heart, the immune system, the oral cavity, where, where work from my lab, um, Jonathan Ahn did this work uh, in my lab, we showed that you could reverse periodontal disease, um, and the ovary, which is an, sort of an emerging area where you know the uh, aged ovary, which in women actually declines first or yeah. nearly first among the tissues and organs you think about that, we call that menopause. If, at least if you hit it before, before the function is totally uh, gone, you can actually restore function in a mouse ovary. So, you know, pretty exciting. I, and I would say there are probably other tissues and organs where rapamycin can have this restorative effect in the context of aging. It's just that people haven't looked, um, broadly speaking, at all the different places you might consider. Okay, Matt. Well, I got I got to put my I got to throw my suggestion in because I have a daughter with type one diabetes. I got. Have you ever? Has it been tested on the pancreas? Ah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think so, but, um, I might embarrass myself by, <laughs> by not being aware. One of the things you'll find is, um, with something like rapamycin and, and mTOR, almost anything you think to go look for a connection, you can find it somewhere in the literature, but certainly it hasn't, um, hasn't come across my radar, uh, as a, 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 a heavily studied area. Although, you know, type one diabetes as opposed to type two diabetes is interesting because there is an autoimmune component yeah. there as well. Um, and I would say the, 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 one of the common themes with rapamycin, this is true in the aging. We already talked about how aging is to some extent an autoimmune disorder. Um, many of the other disease models where rapamycin is most effective in laboratory animals are autoimmune disease models. So, it certainly seems plausible to me that at least if you caught it early enough, yeah. there's the potential for benefits there. I will say, you know, one of the things that um, has been a challenge for rapamycin is because the way it was developed and first FDA approved as an immune suppressant, there is a perception among clinicians and regulators that rapamycin is a dangerous drug. That's a misperception. It's not. I'm just going to say it. Um, uh, the data that has accumulated over the last 10 years, it's pretty clear to me that in the in in people who are not taking other strong immunosuppressants and are taking lower doses or different regimens of rapamycin, the side effect profile is is not significant, nowhere near what what it the, the reputation is. But because of that bad reputation, if you were to go to you know somebody who doesn't, who's not aware of the literature, say, I think we should study rapamycin in the context of type one diabetes and, and, you know, maybe we should do a trial in children. They're gonna be like, oh no, you can't do it in children. It's a horrible drug. It's very dangerous, right? It, it's a frustration. This is um, unfortunately sidelined 
what I think are some really promising potential avenues for clinical evaluation of rapamycin is the ignorance of the a large swath of the clinical community and the regulators about what the real risk reward ratio is for something like rapamycin. Yeah, because you think about, I mean, a lot of things like a, another, anything, and maybe I'm looking at it wrong, anything that seems like it's degenerative, uh, macular degeneration, my, you know, something like that. And, or, um, un, in, un, and this might be where I would see it having a, benef, a huge benefit. Don't, is it like some extraordinary number of people that are carrying precancerous cells already? You may not have cancer, yeah. they may never show up, but I would think that rapamycin, based on what I'm hearing, it could help uh, keep that at bay at least for a longer period of time, or am yeah. I looking at that wrong? So a couple things to say about that. One is I would be careful and not not say anything that's degenerative. I don't certainly don't want to give the okay. impression that rapamycin is a miracle drug in the sense it's going sure. to work for everyone. Sure, sure, sure. I think it really depends on the biology of the specific condition. And I already I already mentioned that one of the things rapamycin does is it inhibits mTOR, which which simplistically moves cells towards a slower division rate or less division. Some degenerative diseases are actually caused by a failure of cells to divide when they should. So rapamycin yeah. might actually be detrimental in that, that context. So I just yeah. want to be a little bit careful not to oversimplify, oversimplify the biology. I think if there's a strong immune mediated inflammatory component, there's a likelihood there that rapamycin could have some, some potential benefits. Um, if there's a strong metabolic component, particularly mitochondria, I think there are opportunities. Um, uh, rapamycin has really interesting effects on the brain. So neurodegenerative disorders are another sort of yeah. general area where there's good reason to believe that rapamycin could be beneficial, but it's certainly not going to be, not going to be great for everything that, that, you know, that that's out there. Right. Um, having said that again, I think that the, the key thing that, um, that I keep coming back to is, uh, it's it's been very difficult for many people who are interested in exploring the clinical applications of rapamycin to actually do those clinical trials because of the misperception of regulatory bodies and clinicians about the 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 risk profile of rapamycin they they have this perception that's a very dangerous drug and Maybe that's true in organ transplant patients, but even there, the side effects, you know, in general are not as bad as lots of other drugs that 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 we think about. But certainly in people who are not taking strong immunosuppressants and are taking lower doses or once weekly dosing of rapamycin, the risk profile is is very favorable. It's it seems like. And uh, certainly when you look at the data, there's no reason to be concerned about rapamycin as a very risky drug. But that makes it so hard to be able to do these clinical trials. Um, because you get pushback as soon as you as soon as you talk about it, particularly if it's something like you know in in children. Although even in adults, I've seen a lot of pushback to people trying to get clinical trials started for conditions in adults as well. It's pretty frustrating. Well, and so that leads us to, and I know we'll just be able to touch on it, but I'd love to have you back to discuss this at length for sure, because uh, I want to respect your time. But the dog project that you're doing as it relates to rapamycin. What is that, and why? Why did you uh, decide to, or why? Why do dogs make sense as a way to to explore rapamycin and its and its potential positive impact a little further? Yeah. So, um, so I'll start by just talking generally about the dog aging project. That's the yep. pro that's what we call it. Website is dogagingproject.org. If, if people are interested, we're still recruiting dogs into the, the project and there's a little button on the website, nominate your dog. Very easy. Um, so, so the, the, that project is, um, 
But the biggest part of the dog aging project is not the rapamycin clinical trial. It's what we call the longitudinal study of aging. That is an observational study with the goal of understanding what are the most important genetic and environmental components of health span and lifespan in companion dogs, um, pet dogs. Uh, so what we're doing there is really not asking the owners to change anything about the way that they care for their dog, um, but just to tell us about the dog's environment, uh, the disease diagnoses the dog has had, um, uh, a subset of the dogs get their genome sequenced. So 10,000 dogs get their genome sequenced. And then a thousand dogs are selected for um, the what we call the precision group, which is kind of a systems biology project where every year the owners, we send them a kit, they take their dog to their private practice veterinarian, the vet sends back blood and feces, and we get uh, blood metabolome, blood epigenome, fecal microbiome annually on those dogs. And so it's a, it's a longitudinal study, meaning that this is happening over time. So for people who aren't familiar with these terms, a cross-sectional study means you look at one time point across the population. So, you know, if we were to collect data on all of the dogs in the dog aging project once and never again, that would be a cross-sectional study. A longitudinal study means you follow those dogs and then periodically get updates. So every year we ask the owners for all the dogs in the dog aging project to give us an update on the health and, and other aspects of the environment that might've changed for their dog. So that project's ongoing. We have 41,000 dogs in the longitudinal study right now, started to publish a lot of um, you know fun and, and I think exciting and interesting papers from that study. Um, uh, and then there is a smaller group of dogs that are part of a clinical trial. So we only have one clinical trial in the dog aging project now. These dogs are selected from the longitudinal group. So we call that big group, the dog aging project pack. That's the 41,000 plus dogs. A subset of those dogs are selected if the owners want to, to participate in the rapamycin clinical trial, which we call triad, test of rapamycin in aging dogs. That's what that stands for. And the goal, and that's a double blind randomized uh, placebo-controlled clinical trial. The goal of that trial is to determine does rapamycin increase lifespan and health span in companion dogs. So that's um, that's a uh, a study of 580 dogs. Half get placebo, half get rapamycin. We don't know. The owners don't know. The veterinarians don't know. It's double blind, <clears throat> placebo-controlled, and the treatment period is one year. Then there's a two-year follow-up. So it's a three-year trial. So every dog that gets enrolled is in the trial for three years. Um, the dogs have to be at least seven years old to come into the study, and they have to be at least 40 pounds to be part of the study. The, the reason for that is that big dogs age faster than small dogs. So again, anybody who's had big dogs and small dogs will recognize this. Um, and in that population that's already middle-aged, over that three-year period, that's kind of the point where a large dog starts to show the declines in function of aging and, and the dramatically increased risk of mortality. So in that cohort with 580 dogs, we um, anticipate that we will have statistical power to detect a 9% change in lifespan. So lifespan wow. is the primary endpoint of that clinical trial. That number, 9%, is important because that's the lower end of what's been reported in mice. So again, we don't know whether it's going to work the same way in dogs or is the magnitude of the effect going to be the same, but it gets us in the right ballpark to be able to detect a change in lifespan if there's going to be one. So that's that's why the study is designed the way it is. So lifespan is the primary endpoint. Um, but of course, we're looking at 
a variety of health metrics because we really want to understand not only might in rapamycin increase lifespan, but might it also delay functional declines of aging. So we're looking at heart function, neurological function, muscle function through activity measurements, things like that, disease incidents, cancer frequencies, things like that, to try to understand is health you know, broadly impacted as, as well by rapamycin. Um, dogs, we're, we're enrolling dogs right now. We need more dogs for that trial. So if people have, you know, dogs in that age and weight range, and they might want to participate, absolutely encourage you to go to the website, nominate your dog. Um, uh, hopefully we'll have all of the dogs enrolled next calendar year. The study, like I said, is blinded. So we won't know the answer for three years uh, after the final dog gets enrolled, but that's the, that's the overall sort of, um, design of the rapamycin clinical trial. Excellent. I'll definitely put all the information for that in, in the show notes. And Great. one of the things that you mentioned there that I want to just kind of kind of put a bow on this is we know that lifespan has just, I guess, just with modern medicine has, has increased. But yeah. one of the things that I like about your work is it's not just living longer, but it's living longer and healthier in that right. in old age is in kind of those I guess what, what, well, to refer back to uh, Peter Tia, those marginal years where you're, you're kind of on the, I think saying borrowed time is a wrong thing to say, but you know, you're, you're kind of in excess of where, of the averages. <clears throat> so where do you see things going and, and what, like, what are your personal protocols? And I, again, I know it's unique to you. I'm not asking you the, the, the typical yes. podcast question of, Hey, tell me your, your daily routine, Matt, Yeah. but kind of <clears throat> universally, what are some things with that you that you would just say, hey, audience member, if you do this, 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 and you know, they, you should at least, based on your research, get yourself to the higher end of lifespan. But then also, just from your scientific, uh, 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 I guess, mindset or outlook, what are you most excited about with the work you're doing right now? And the and what's the greatest? optimism you have for lifespan and healthy lifespan in the research that you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So a few things to say about, about that. You, you alluded to the fact that life expectancies have increased pretty dramatically over the last 60 years in many countries. It's kind of interesting that trend, at least in the United States, may be reversing. We'll see with the obesity epidemic and with with the pandemic and all that, but which in is any just case, crazy. which is crazy. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's a different discussion, right. but I do think, I do think it is important. It's useful to recognize that life expectancy has increased. That probably hasn't been from targeting the biology of aging. It's been from a couple things. It's been from, you know, things like antibiotics, people aren't dying as much from infections and things like that. And the medical profession has has done a pretty good job at keeping sick people alive. A lot more people are alive with multiple age-related disease diagnoses today than they were 50 years ago. What's a little bit less clear, and, I, and actually I don't think it's unclear at all, I would say at the population level, it seems clear that we haven't significantly impact health span. Many more people are sick, but living longer I don't think it, I don't think it's the case that many more people are healthy longer. Some people are, but at the population level, I don't think that's the case. So we've we've increased lifespan, probably haven't increased health span at the population level. And I would say that's because we focused on diseases rather than the biology of aging. I think there's probably a causal relationship there. Okay. Absolutely. That's number one. Number number two, you know, what 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 do I do? I think that's the way I would frame it. I I try not to make 
maybe I should get out of this. I, I still am uncomfortable making recommendations to people because I think a lot of this is individual. I feel I feel comfortable making recommendations that you probably shouldn't eat a lot of donuts and candy and fast food, but that's, you know, everybody knows that. <laughs> everybody should know that. Um, I'm not sure everybody does. Um, so what do I do? Like, I, I think for me, again, this is evolving. I think one, I sort of touched on this at the very beginning. I think people should be willing to change their beliefs and opinions as we get more data. So my views evolve as I learn. And I, you know, I know a lot about the biology of aging. I'm not particularly an expert in, in, in other areas. Nutrition, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in nutrition. Um, I, I understand nutrition as it intersects the biology of aging. I'm just saying, I think as you learn more, Number one is you have to be skeptical, get your information from credible sources. Unfortunately, there's a lot of sources out there that aren't credible, um, but be willing to modify your opinions and beliefs as you get new data. Okay. So I would say my um, approach to health span has evolved over the last 10 years. So I maybe, maybe 15 years. So I, I very much for me personally have gotten to a point where I am very certain that uh, a, a relatively low carbohydrate diet and very low in simple carbohydrates works really well for me. Um, I feel so much better than I did, you know, 15 years ago. And I wouldn't say I had a terrible diet, but I didn't avoid, you know, the, the very simple sugar uh, enriched foods that are, that are ubiquitous, even things that aren't obvious, right? Almost everything has added sugar. So I, I pay a lot more attention to that works really well for me. I've done continuous glucose monitoring, things like that. I have some data to back it up. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I think a lot of people should try it's, you know, again, there's going to be genetic and environmental variation at the individual level that maybe that's not the best sort of general nutritional strategy for everybody. But I think for a lot of people, it it is, and I think everybody should try it, right? I, I would I would recommend that everybody really take three four months and pay attention to the amount of simple sugar you're eating and cut it way back if you can, and I think you'll probably notice the difference. So that's that's number one, um, and it doesn't have to be ketogenic. You know, you can try a ketogenic diet if you want to, but you, it doesn't have to be that extreme. So number two is I. Uh, am pretty consistent with doing resistance training three times a week. I, um, and again, there's a variety of ways you can do this. I, 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 uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, so I used to go to a gym, I invested in, in my own, uh, free weights at home. I've got a squat rack and free weights and that works great for me. So I, I do that three times a week. It's harder when I'm traveling, but when I'm at home, I'm pretty consistent. Um, and that's probably been the most uh, effective thing for me over the last three years. You know, I was going to the gym. I wasn't as consistent with it as I should have been. Now that I have it at home, it's easier for me to be consistent. Same. And, uh, you know, for my personal health, uh, and, and the way I feel, I think that's been the most important thing. If I, if I could say everybody do one thing, I would say, figure out a resistance training program that works for you and stick with it for six months you will notice the difference, right? I'm pretty confident. Um, it doesn't have to be extreme. You don't have to kill yourself. You want to avoid injury and overtraining. That's why I do three days a week. It works really well. But I think that's one thing that I would I would think everybody should try. And then I do, I do you know, a light cardio. I don't, I don't get extreme. I don't worry a lot about, you know, 
high intensity training or any of that stuff, but I do some level of cardio training, uh, you know, a couple times, three times a week, do a lot of outdoor stuff. My wife is great because she gets me outdoors hiking. I think, you know, again, depending on where you live, your personal sort of opportunities to get out into nature, I think that can be really important and valuable for people to be able to get out into nature, decompress. If you're doing something physical while you're out there, that's great. So I think there are probably a variety of these kinds of strategies that people, somebody, I'm sure somebody has done this, right? Needs to put together a menu of these things. You can figure out, okay, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. There are a few things I think everybody should try. And if, and I would say the two that I would put really high is try a diet that's low in simple sugar and try regular resistance training and give it six months. I'm pretty sure you're going to, you're going to be better off then than you are today. If you just make a commitment to do that. And I think that the simplicity of that is absolutely amazing. The simplicity of it. And again, going back to what you and Peter T have talked about is it's the, the impact, especially if you're coming from a do nothing off the couch to doing those things, it's going to blow people's minds. You know, and I think that's what they don't realize is that the fruit is hanging so low, just go grab it and you'll yeah. be amazed. I think you're right. But I would also say it's not even, I mean, I, I agree with you. The people who are coming from, you know, the typical, maybe the, the average or below average for yeah. Americans, you're absolutely right. But even people who are, you know, feel like they're relatively healthy, which is where I would have put myself 10 years ago. And I probably was relatively healthy. I think you can still, you can still feel and make um, improvements in your health status and it should be a journey. And, you know, you should be learning as you go. And I think that reinforces, uh, uh, the ability to stick with some of these these strategies. So you have to develop the new habits. Once you've developed them, it's easier to keep the good habits. You have to get out of the bad habits, but it should also be evolving as as you go, right? And and trying new things, I think, um, also plays a big role in not becoming you know fatigued with with uh, the the lifestyle that you're living. I think you know you got to have fun. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect, right? Uh, you can take a vacation. That's okay. But um, but you got to stick with the fundamentals. I think that's really important. Could not agree more. Well, Matt, this has been so fun for me, man. I mean, I, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and the the years and years of research. This is such an exciting time, I think. You know, to and what you what you mentioned about yes, we're living longer, but not necessarily healthier. And for people to finally start focusing on health span as yeah. as opposed to just lifespan. It's an exciting time, man. So I, I'm going to continue to follow your work. You're welcome back on the show anytime. I am so Thanks. grateful for you making this time, brother. And and Godspeed, man. Keep it up. I, I'm hoping, like I said earlier, I'm hoping that our policymakers will start reaching out to guys like you, to researchers that understand the benefits of, again, health spam versus life spam. It's more cost effective. It's better for the people involved. I know we could probably go all day. Well, it, it just real quickly, just say, Everyone, I think, should be wearing a continuous glucose monitor. As soon as my daughter had to start wearing one, and I realized the benefits of it, and realized guys like you that are not that don't have diabetes, you still wear right. them. Uh, it's 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 mind blowing when you start to understand your 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 biological markers and how your body's responding to different things. Again, people think they're healthier. This didn't have an impact on my body, but you might be just eating a, an inflammation burger if you're not careful. Yeah, I, I think CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, are, are sort of a, an interesting example here, right? So, so I would I would push back a little bit and say I'm not sure everybody should be wearing them. And the reason okay. why I say that is there's there's two reasons. One is I don't think everybody's equipped to actually 
understand what they're telling you. That's fair. I think we need, we need tools. This is something that I've noticed, right? Is we need better tools for, for how we interpret the data that you can get from things like CGMs, even aura rings, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people aren't equipped to interpret that data and the tools that are available are not great. Um, so that's, that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is I don't think those tools are helpful if they cause you stress, right? So, so I, I approach these things from the learning perspective. Like I want to learn what different thing, what impact different things have on my physiology. But, you know, if, and this happened to me, it's kind of funny. So the first time I wore a CGM, um, uh, you know, like I said, I eat a pretty low simple sugar diet. My wife and I went to New York to visit a good, good friend of ours out there. Um, and, uh, um, she's like, okay, we're in New York. We got to get bagels while we're here. And I don't, I don't typically eat bagels. Right. So we went and we got a bagel with cream cheese. And like an hour and a half later, the alarm on my phone's going <laughs> off. <laughs> right. And yeah. that kind of freaked me out. I'll be honest with you, because it was yeah. the first time that it happened. And I think, you know, but then I was, okay, that makes sense. I get it. Uh, this is actually a good learning experience. I haven't had a bagel since then. Um, <laughs> but I think some people get freaked out by that kind of stuff. And so, so I would say, you know, if you're going to wear a CGM, uh, if you if you don't have the uh, ability to, and you don't feel like you have the ability to really interpret that data, maybe do it in in consultation with a physician or somebody who can help you. I, I, this is an area I think those tools will get developed. I know some people who are working on them, but the thing I would say is, you know, the 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 healthy longevity lifestyle, health span style, whatever you want to call it, um, an important part of that is enjoying it, not being super stressed out about it, not feeling like it's a burden. It's not going to be, it's kind of like caloric restriction, right? Caloric restriction. I think we can all appreciate why almost nobody's going to be able to do that for 30 years to a lesser extent. You need to take that same mindset to whatever you are doing, right? Whatever you're doing, it's got to be something that is going to work for you for the long run. And if things like CGM um, are giving you stress, maybe it's not a, a part of the strategy that's going to, that's going to work for you. So thinking about what's going to, what's going to be, what you're going to be able to stick with in the long run, what's fun, what gives you enjoyment in life, I think is equally as important as, you know, really focusing a lot on what you're eating and how much you're exercising and things like that. Finding the balance is, is critical. Brother, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing inside because when my wife listens to this episode and she hears that last part that you just that you just said she's gonna be like see i told you because whenever i got my aura ring and i tracked my sleep before but you know the aura is that's kind of their their thing is like it's really good a really yeah. good sleep tracker and so <laughs> she swears that i wasn't sleeping well my sleep scores were low because she's like you're so stressed out about it i hate that thing and she knows and i'm yeah. that guy that if what the, the first time the markers are off, then it becomes a challenge. Like, oh my God, like, go to sleep, you know, turn the air down, get the chili pack, yep. you know, what all that. Yep. Uh, so yeah, she's gonna she's gonna get a big kick out of that, Matt. So thanks a lot, brother. You really so you got gave... you got it. You got to be aware of the uh, the technology and the, the the pros and cons, right? I think, um, and you know, uh, or again, getting a little bit off on a tangent, but the way I think about this, it's actually I think for me at least useful to think about this. We don't really think about side effects for things like CGMs or aura yeah. rings or even exercise, right? Yeah. When we think about risk reward, we don't really think about things like that having side effects, but they do. What you just described is an, is a side effect of your aura ring, right? It's yeah, not absolutely. the goal. <laughs> right. It's a, And in this case, it's negative. I, I think about this with exercise a lot. Exercise 
it has probably the worst side effect profile of anything, any lifestyle intervention out there, right? I'm, yeah. I have sore muscles all the time from exercise. That's a pretty mild side effect, but it's a side effect. I'm fatigued all the time. Lots of people get injuries from resistance training or exercise, right? Those are all adverse events. If, if you were going to do a clinical trial, and this is, this is part of my frustration with the way that we regulate, um, uh, drugs in, in the United States, right? It's all about, it's all about minimizing side effects, but without any sort of rational approach to what is an acceptable side effect profile. If we had a drug that gave you the benefits of exercise with the same side effects as exercise today, you would never get that approved by FDA. That's a good Because they would say it's way too dangerous. Exercise is way point. more dangerous than rapamycin. Yeah. Right? So, great so we, I think, I think starting to take a little bit more rational approach to risk reward um, again, is going to be important as we kind of move forward in this, this new world of maximizing health span and thinking about what are the, what is the real risk reward profile for all of these different things that we think about? Yeah. I love it. Very, very sage advice, Matt. Thank you, my man. This has been so fun. I really appreciate it, brother. Sit tight. I'm going to hit end here. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. You know, guys, I'm very fortunate because I have a very, very understanding wife. For example, I just received this week my ninth pair of zero shoes. I love zero shoes. You've got to check them out. If you have never experienced the, just this superb, almost massage. It's like little angels massaging your feet while you work out when you're wearing zeros. They are just an absolute game changer. They are as close as you can get to being barefooted, which is better for your arch, better for your foot support, better for your over. It engages more muscles. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's good for your feet. And let me tell you something. The older you get, when you're when you're an old fart like me, you want a good solid foundation, and that starts with having good, healthy feet and zero shoes helps you get there. You can go and order a pair right now and support the Jason Wright Show by going to jasonrightnow.com forward slash happy dash feet. That's jasonrightnow.com forward slash happy dash feet so that you too can experience happy feet. I'm telling you, they're a game changer. Get some zero shoes now. Find out why Ben Greenfield, Peter Atia, all the muckety mucks of the health and wellness world wear zero shoes, and you should too. Go get you some.